All right, you guys have your Bibles open. We're ready for Judges chapter 16 today. So we get the infamous story of um, Samson and Delilah. Now, one of the things about sin in your life and in my life is that sin um, sears your conscience. You know, the Bible says that, that your conscience will be seared as with a hot iron. You guys ever heard that scripture before? So, so basically what, what happens in that is the first time that you, you sin, it, it's, it's difficult and it, it plagues your conscience and it, you really feel bad about it. And then the second time you sin, it's, it's bad, but not as bad as the first time. And then the third time and then the fourth time. And what happens, right, when you continue in a life of that particular sin, it gets easier. That's just the bottom line. It just, it doesn't bother you as much as it did in the beginning of it. And the Bible describes it as your conscience being seared with a hot iron. And so, you know, it's a danger for us as Christians. One of the things that King David prayed, and one of the things we love about King David was King David had such an amazing heart for God. Even so much, right, that God calls King David what? A man after my own heart. Like of all the things that you could be called by God, who, I mean, how cool is that, right? Like, yeah, that's, that's just God. He just, he just calls me a man after his own heart. Like, I just have the same heart he does, you know. Like, and, and David, who had lots of sins in his life and had lots of failures, and somebody, again, who's, who's a little difficult to figure out because of the amazing grace of God because of the sins in his life, but yet the heart of David. You know, the great thing about King David was that when, when King David ended his life, he, he went down as the sweet psalmist of Israel. From his own his own mouth, from his own idea that he described himself as the sweet psalmist of Israel. And, and so of all the things, he was a king. He was a giant slayer. He he was on and on and on and on and on. And yet his his what was near and dear to his heart at the end of his life was the psalms that God used him to write. And so um, but King David wrote a lot about that, that that concept of not having a hard heart or hard conscience towards the Lord. And again, for us as Christians, we, we don't want to have a hard heart. And so David, David prayed, you know, search me, God, and see if there be anything. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And, and, and the idea that, that we want to have a soft heart. And, and I know for me, one of the things through, through my walk with the Lord, you know, not, not so much as a pastor, just as a, a Christ follower, is that I, I've always had a fear, a healthy fear, of becoming having my conscience seared over per certain parts of my life. It's one of the things that, that scares me about sin in my life. It's one of the things that, that motivates me against sin in my life. And when I get to a point of repentance where I'm, I'm broken over something and I'm asking God to forgive me, it, it's always on the tip of my tongue that, that God would um, not allow my heart to become hardened in, in any area of life, in any area of sin in my life. You guys catch that? So it's something that we're going to see in the life of Samson. That it's exactly what happens to Samson, that, that hot iron that the Bible talks about that passes over your heart every time you sin and ignore it, 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 it becomes one of the things that makes it the most scary, first of all, is because eventually if that hot, hot iron passes too many times over a heart, it, it, it doesn't want to become soft anymore. And it can reach the point where it cannot become soft anymore. And so the danger is every time it's like, you know, it's like you're, you're playing with fire. It's, it's a house of dominoes. And one of these times the, the entire house is going to come down. So we're going to see here and we're going to meet Delilah. Now, I think I want to start with, um, and we'll get into 16, but let me, let me start in Proverbs chapter five. Now, Samson was, uh, he was a he man with a what? 
He was a he-man with a she problem. Now, you, you could go through, and I probably could have picked multiple places in um, the Proverbs to illustrate this truth. But, um, you know, the, the thing that we talked about, one of the concepts that we've been talking about through the life of Samson is, um, number one, do not be unequally yoked together with non-believers, as is the practice of some, and do not forsake the gathering of the brethren, it says in Corinthians. And so one of the things that, that the New Testament tells us is that, you know, if, if we're Christians, we're not to marry or be together with non-Christians. If, um, if we are, what was I going to say? I lost my train. So, oh, so, so in the Old Testament, I was New Testament. So in the Old Testament, one of the things that we see throughout all of Israel's history, one of the major things that plagues Israel and that God is constantly warning. I mean, really, it's such a huge, huge part of the Old Testament is the fact that God doesn't want his people to, to marry, to, to, to marry outside of their faith or outside of really Hebrews. You remember, um, you know, Abraham, when Abraham was, was picking a wife for his son, Isaac, who, um, you know, he waited all that time for Isaac and he took him up onto Mount Moriah and it was his only child. And they waited 40 years for the promise of God. And, you know, and then when he sent his servant Gehazi to go and find a bride for Isaac, he said, you have to go back to the, to, to my people, to where I came from and find a bride from my house. And, um, Gehazi said, well, if I, you know, if I can't find one, from your house, do I bring Isaac with me? And Abraham was so fearful in this situation that, that Gehazi would end up with a bride outside of, of the Hebrew faith and outside of, of Hebrews that he, no matter what, that that was not going to be an option. And it's just one example after another, after another. And we talked about Balak and Balaam. Remember the story of, of Balak and Balaam? Balak, I always get the two mixed up. Balaam, which one was the prophet? Balaam was the prophet and Balak was the king. And the pagan king wanted to curse the nation of Israel. And so he hired a Hebrew prophet named Balaam. And he said, go and pronounce a curse over the people of Israel and I'll make you very wealthy. And Balaam went and he, and he, and he was on a cliff overlooking the camp of Israel. And he began to prophesy and only blessings came out. And the king said, you fool, don't you know I could make you very wealthy? And he, a second time he tried and he really wanted the money. But so he finally comes back to Balak, the king, and he says, look, I cannot curse the people of Israel. I've, I've tried and only blessing comes out. And he said, but if, if you get the pagan women to come through the camp of Israel and seduce the, the, the men of Israel to, to sleep, to go into the pagan women, then God will not have a choice but to curse the, the nation of Israel. And that's exactly what happened, the curse of Balaam. Jesus even talks about in Revelation the doctrine of Balaam. And so, um, again, just, just in a very quick time without really laying out 20 of them, which we could, that there's a, a really um, central theme all the way through the Bible uh, about this idea that, that God wants us to be equally yoked together. And that was Solomon's problem. Now, on another note, um, what Proverbs chapter five is about is a pretty strict warning. You know, I mean, thank, thank God. You know, like I said, one of the things I'm really proud of is that Lydia and I right now are, are celebrating 20 years of, of faithful marriage one to another, you know, and there's this huge blessing in that. And just the idea that, that we've been faithful to each other for 20 years and, um, you know, and there's a, there's a great temptation for, for adultery and sin. But, you know, some of the things that God says about a man who goes into another, another man's wife is pretty scary. 
And, you know, knowing those verses, and it helped motivate me, you know, to be afraid of God and, and what will happen and what God will do. But also the idea that of the seductress woman. Now, on a, I, I guess on a certain scale, we're going to see Delilah today. And then we're also going to see these women that, that are described in Proverbs basically as a, a, a temptress of Satan, a tool of Satan in the life of God's children to distract them. The same way that Balaam sent the women in as tools of Satan with the sole purpose of, of causing God to curse these, these young men. But let's, let's look at what Solomon tells us in Proverbs. And Solomon says, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge for the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. The lips of an immoral woman drip honey. Now, part of the reason Solomon says they drip honey is because honey is is um, enticing. It's 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 luscious. It's not like, you know, she looks like Rocky Dennis when she shows up, you know, I mean. She she looks seductress and her lips are, 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 are dripping with honey. And, you know, it's the whole the whole part of this, the idea of, of, of the seductress woman. And it says, but in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood. So it's sweet as honey on the outside and and the end is is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of what? Verse five, five, five. Her feet go down. To death and her steps lay hold of hell. Like that's serious. That's serious. The the temptation that so so again, what I'm saying very clearly, maybe not very clearly, but I'm thinking I'm gonna clear it up for us, is that Satan will and does use women to distract, to bring, to bring people men to hell, to cause men to, to stumble, to you know, and there's a there's a certain attack of Satan. And that's very powerful, right? And, you know, we live in a, in a place now, and it's new to, to, I guess, because of where we live and the, the times that we live in. Not to say maybe that the temptations weren't available in 1900 or 1800 or 1700, but, I mean, they, they use sex to sell hamburgers today. Like, what in the world do you think? What in the world could you not, you know, use sex to sell? They will absolutely use sex to sell anything. They'll use sex to sell insoles in your shoes. How do those two go together? I have no idea, but it works, right? And so it is a tool of Satan that Satan uses. Um, and, then, and then again, and it applies to Samson's life. That's why we're starting here. Verse number six says, lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable. You do not know them. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from words of my mouth. Remove your ways far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Don't don't mess with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't even go near the door of her house. You stay away from her. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. And that that's that's a terrible thing for men, for men to give their honor away. You know, and that's the problem. You know, you cheat on your wives and, you know, the other thing, too, for 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 me, one of the things that I've always thankfully I've had a decent grasp on was I, I understood that if if I was ever to cheat on my wife. The, the pleasure in the moment that I would gain, if it was however long it lasted, however long the, you know, whatever it was, compared to, to the price that, that, that I would pay to throw my family away. 
and to throw my marriage away and the blessing. I mean, I would not be celebrating 20 years in Hawaii with a beautiful woman and a beautiful daughter and, and a life for what? For, for trying to be nice. I'm trying to be good, you guys. <laughs> I was going to say three minutes, but <laughs> I don't, on a good day, right? <laughs> um, all right. I said, I, yeah. All right. That's not on the tape, right? <laughs> We're going to like cut that out. All right. So not worth it. It's just not worth it to throw your honor away. And it says, um, verse 10, lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and you mourn at last when, you're, when your flesh and your body are consumed and say, how I have hated instruction in my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to those who instruct me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Drink water from your, I love it. God says, drink water from your own cistern. <laughs> oh, come on, somebody. And running water from your own well. Like God's given you a well, you drink water from that one. You stay away from everybody else's. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Amen. As a loving deer and a graceful doe. I love the way the Bible describes women. <laughs> Do you guys, will, will you guys feel, uh, uh, um, again, trying to be good. Would you feel blessed if your husband called you a deer? <laughs> like a real deer, like a doe, a deer, a heifer. Solomon calls them heifers and fillies and verse 19 as a loving deer and a graceful doe let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love for why should you my son be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress and so again those are not my words you guys those are god's words seductress and it says verse 21 for the ways of a man are before the eyes of the lord and he ponders all his past his own iniquities entrap the wicked man and he is caught in the cords of sin he shall die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. I, I, I'm, um, look at chapter 6, verse 20. One more time, then we're going to go back to it. We're going to get into in Judges, I promise. It says, um, my son, keep your father's command. You do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck, 622. When you roam, they will lead you. And when you sleep, they will... They will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law of light. Reproof of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. An adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes and not be burned? Let me answer the question. Verse 27. The answer is no. You know, you know, the thing about, uh, you know, and especially for the pastors, unfortunately, so many pastors have fallen into this um, particular sin. And, you know, I want to tell you that there is absolutely zero chances you're going to get away with it. You know, honestly, I do a lot of traveling and, you know, I could be in Israel alone, you know, and and nobody knows but me and somebody on a street. And I wouldn't get away with it. I promise you, God, it happens. It happens. You just do not get away with it. 
And so, you know, and so many times people think they're going to get away with it. And, the, and, the, and God says, number one, God says your sins will find you out. And God won't allow that. God will expose that 100%, especially among the pastors. And then, and then here God says you can't take fire into your lap and not be burned. And, and you know, so there's, there's no getting away with it. That's another thing that I understand and know biblically and know, um, you know, um, um, just from experience that nobody gets away with it. You get caught 100% of the time. Can one walk on hot coals and, and his feet not be seared? Is that why they, that's why they do that, right? Because the Bible asks that question. So these guys say, well, yeah, I can do it. You know, they want to. And so he, I've seen those guys do that before. It's pretty crazy. So he who goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. So is he who, who goes into his neighbor's wife. People do not despise the thief. All right, so um, I, I, I thought, I was looking for a verse. There's a specific verse with a, with a very strict warning about the man who goes into another man's wife. And again, it's not good. It's not good what God's going to do to the man that goes into another man's wife. All right, turn with me, if you will, back to Judges 16. We're going to get to Delilah, but before we do, there's a little quick story in the beginning of chapter 16 that we're going to catch, and then we're going to get into the infamous story of Samson and Delilah. And it says in chapter 16, in verse 1, Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. Now, so many things wrong with this first verse. Samson, again, he's going to these places um, there, there was a big vineyard in this place we've already saw in the same city where Samson was, where he wasn't supposed to be around a vineyard. He continues to go to these pagan areas. And, and you know, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but the truth is there was harlots in Israel. There was harlots in, in Samson's own backyard. If the, if the only purpose was to find a harlot, he could have done that if that was his intention right there at home. But instead, he, he goes into the pagan land, and there he finds a harlot, and he went into her. And, and you know, some of, some of the commentaries suggest that um, this was a harlot that Samson, again, um, frequented, that he, he, he liked maybe this particular girl, and so he kept going back to this place. Because the story is the guys of the city are going to see him there, and they're going to set a trap for him. But they, they say, again, they would have been able to set that trap because they would have known that this was a particular woman that Samson liked, and he had been there before, and now he's back. And it says, when the Gazites were told Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they were quiet all night, saying, in the morning, when it is day, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight, and then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. So um, I, I don't really know how Samson found out, if the Lord told him or... Um, it doesn't really say, right? Did I miss something? It just says that they were going to lay in wait. They were going to kill him in the morning. And at midnight, Samson realizes what's going on. And so he takes off and he gets to the gate of the city and the gates were locked and he couldn't get out. And so this is one of the most amazing feats recorded in the Bible. Like you guys remember Pippi Longstocking? She used to kick that garage door on top of her and hold it with all the animals and her family and everybody on top of that. Well, I wonder if they got the idea from, from Samson. Um, again, he takes the gates of a city. Now, this is not a cartoon. This is not, you know, the Avengers. This is a real event in history that really happened. And, and again, it's, it's hard to believe. It really is. It's just hard to flesh this out because at the very least, I mean, we're talking about 
2,000 pounds? I mean, we're talking about uh, we're talking about a ton, a half a ton. I mean, we're talking about the posts, the gate of a, of a city. I mean, this is a big, huge structure that's in the ground that, you know, protects from battering rams. And it has to have some girth and it has to have a certain size. And Samson rips the gate and the post and the entire thing out of the ground. He puts it on his back. And just because he's Samson, childish Samson, you know, he goes and all these things that he's constantly doing, you know, he acts like a 14-year-old teenager who's upset. And he he carries them to, it says, he carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. That's 35 miles away. 35 miles away. I mean, so it's supernatural, right? Because I don't care if the gate was 500 yards away, right? I don't care if the gate was 50 feet away or the Hebron mountain was 50 feet away or, or you know, it's supernatural, first of all, for him to rip these gates out of the ground, put them on his back, and then take off like Forrest Gump 35 miles until he gets to the, 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 the hill that faces Hebron. And in verse four, it says, afterward, it happened that he loved a woman. So now we're going to another woman, right? So the hooker, or I mean, sorry, the, what do they call Harlot, harlot, right? That's a, that's a little easier on the ears, right? The, the harlot prostitute. All right, let's move on. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the Valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. So now we meet Delilah, infamous Delilah, Samson and Delilah story. And so again, a he man with a she problem and he loves this, this woman, Delilah. You know, what's interesting about, um, Samson's love for Delilah is that it's not agape love. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a lustful love. And so, it's the arrow, not not even um, not phileo, but eros. So again, agape, phileo, and eros. Phileo is 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 Philadelphia or brotherly love. Eros is a you know the word that we use, lust or a lustful type of love. And it says in verse five, and the Lord of the Philistines came up up to her and said to her, entice him and find out where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him. And every one of us will give you 1100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies. And so Samson, uh, Delilah was not loyal. She wanted the money. I think she kind of fits the Proverbs five woman. She's she's out for the seductress and she cared about the money and they each were going to give her the eleven hundred pieces of silver. I'm sure quite a substantial amount of money. And immediately she takes the deal and and she's not loyal to Samson at all. Um, You know, a couple things here as we begin this part, you know, the the enemy here. And again, as as Delilah represents uh, the temptress of Satan and the seductress of Satan, the tool of Satan in this particular case is this woman. Um, But. Satan is attacking Samson in his area of strength. He's looking for his strength. You know, and oftentimes we, we, we think that, you know, the Lord, and, and he does, I'm sorry, not the Lord, but Satan will tempt you. He'll attack you where you're weakest. And you, each of us have a weakness, and we have to be on guard for our weakness. But at the same time, one of the things you see that's interestingly enough in the Bible is that a lot of the men in the Bible, they fall not in the areas where they were the weakest, but in the areas where they were the strongest. 
You know, um, Peter was was somebody who was very courageous and somebody who, who, who had tremendous amount of faith. And those are the areas in Peter's life where Peter falls and, you know, and the little girl comes to him and he and he's afraid. And, um, you know, you see that repeated over and over again in in all of the, the lives is, is oftentimes where we're the strongest is where we fall. And, and it's kind of crazy, but some, some of you suggested that, you know, maybe where you know you're, you're good in. And so sex, money, and power, or let's say you're not tempted in, you know, in, in stealing the money or, or the power. But, you know, so that's something that you're good at. It just doesn't, uh, it doesn't really affect you. It doesn't really something that, that Satan, you know, the other areas you're weaker in, you know, you've got a, a weakness for. But the areas that you're, you're weak in, you pray over those areas. You're guarded over those areas. And your strengths, maybe not so much. You don't pray about them as regularly. You don't, you know, really guard them as, as much as you need to. And it becomes an area of vulnerability. And, and oftentimes we see, again, biblically, that, that Satan attacks us not only where we're weak, but also sometimes he's more effective in, in attacking us where we're the strongest. And so it says in verse 7, it says, And Samson said to her, <clears throat> If they bind me... Or she says in verse six, let's read it. Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and like any other man. And so he's kind of messing with her, you know. And, and again, as the story begins, you, you immediately now ask yourself as this thing unfolds, um, you know, as, as this woman comes to Samson and she says, Samson, tell me where your great strength lies and what could happen to you so that you could be bound. Now, maybe the first time and initially that question is like, could be somewhat honest and just you're talking, you have a conversation and, you know, but then when you tell her timey with seven bowstrings and you wake up and you're tied with seven bowstrings and Philistines are coming at you, maybe you realize now that wasn't just a conversation that she was, she was really out to get you. And so, um, but, you know, Samson is flirting with it and he's he, he's he's I don't know, messing with her in the beginning. And it says, so the Lord of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings yet not yet dried. And she bound and she bound him with them. And how did she bind him with him? I guess he was, you know, I guess in the story here, one of the things you're going to see multiple times is that Samson is sleeping. He's often sleeping. So I don't know if she, you know, at night or whatever, she put him to bed and then. Um, she began these things and now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not yet known, you know, and, and part of the thing that, you know, Satan wants to do men, women in, in the sin in our lives is, you know, the phrase here is what will make you um, like any other man? You know, what, what makes you as a Christian different? Like we're different because we're salt and light. We're different because that's the whole point of us is that we're a new creation in Christ. And, and part of Satan's plan is to make you like any other man that, that he's defeated before, that he's conquered, that's not walking with Christ. And so that's the thing of, of Samson is to make him like any other man. And so Samson wakes up and he, he takes care of these Philistines. And then Delilah said to him in verse number 10, look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now, please tell me where you may be bound. At this point, you know, like and, and, and she said or he said to her, if you go and take a really long walk off a short bridge. 
If you jump off a tall building head first, then I will be like any other man. I mean, at this point, he needs to tell her to kick rocks. And so he said to her, if they, in verse 11, if they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. And therefore, Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait, staying in the room, but he broke them off his arms like a thread. And so Delilah, verse 13, said to Samson, until now you have mocked me. Well, I don't know if he's mocking her or she's mocking him. And told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, if you weave seven locks of my head into the weave of a loom. uh Oh, Samson. Now he's getting dangerously close to um, his hair and, and really. And as we know, right, Samson's great strength did not lie in his hair. Samson's great strength lied in a phrase that we've highlighted many times over the last couple of weeks, that the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. We spent a lot of, a lot of last week talking about the concept that um, not by power nor by might, but what? But by my spirit, says the Lord. So if you guys didn't learn what we learned last week, we're going to have to go back. So let's try it again. We're just getting moving. Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so that's the key to each one of our lives is not by your might, not by your power, but, but by the move of God's Holy Spirit, you know, for our church. You know, what's going what's gonna to bless our church and see lives change and see us grow and be a light? It's not going to be by any of our doings. It's going to be by a genuine move of God's Holy Spirit in this place and us seeking the Lord for that and relying on that and, and counseling that. I think I told you guys last year about, you know, one of the wise old owls, one of the wise pastors of Calvary Chapel who's... In his age now, Gail Irwin, he, you know, was there and, and, and a pastor's church was growing and things were going really well. And somebody asked the pastor, you know, what is the key to the success of your ministry? And Gail Irwin, looking on, said, if this young man does not say, if he says anything other than the grace of God, he's in big trouble and it's over. And, and it's just that. It's just the grace of God, not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. But now Samson is flirting with the idea of his hair and he's getting dangerously close to this thing and she's wearing him down. And so verse 12, she, I'm sorry, verse, um, where are we at? 14. So she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom and said to him, the Philistines, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the batten and the web of the loom. And she said to him, how can you say I love you? Uh Oh, oh, no. I think we talked about last week, too. You know, are you girls feeling a little bad yet? Have I been picking on you guys a little too much? But we're not not you girls, but some girls like Delilah. Okay, Um, uh, she throws out the you don't love me. How can you say you love me card? And, you know, and she's wearing him down, you know, and so. When a woman says that, you don't love me, you know, yeah, that's the trump card. You know, what are you going to do then? Just try to prove you love her. And so he said, when your heart is not with me, you have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed unto death. Oh, my This is the work of this seductress woman, you know, and again, you know, choosing a good wife, choosing a good mate. 
is so, so, so important, right, in life and who we are. And I tease, the, I tease my sons, you know, and they're, they're just now kind of reaching that age. And I told them, just you know, right, you, you, you marry her, you marry her family. And, uh, you know, and so the, but she's, she's pressing him. Listen, vexed to death. His soul was vexed to death. And it says that, that she pestered him. Or she pressed him. All these words are used. Pestered, pressed, vexed. Um, you know, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, it says that a contentious woman is like a dripping faucet. Drip, 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 drip. No doubt she was dripping, 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 dripping. It says that a, uh, 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 how's this, how's it go? A man would rather sleep on the roof than dwell in the tents with a, with a contentious woman. Yeah, but again, you guys look at me like, I, like I'm crazy, but... Those are, those are scriptures. Um, so she's, she's just finally, he's had enough. And um, in verse 17, that he told her all his heart. And so he finally breaks out and he just tells her his heart. He gives her his heart. And so I, I don't know if, uh, you know, I think really in the, in the relational sense and in the love sense that this, this does mean that, that Samson at that point really committed to her. Like he... And I th- you'd think that at the point you commit to somebody in a relationship like that, it's because you've, you've decided that you trust them. And, and this woman is definitely has proven that she can't be trusted. And, and Sam, Samson pours his heart out to her and he tells her, no razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And so do we realize that... Um, you know, again, Samson's strength was not in his hair. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up one more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought money in her hand. So um, by this point, you would think that the lords of the Philistines would be getting frustrated with her because she keeps failing. But I, I think at this point, she convinced them that she really had him this time. And, they, and then when, however she communicated that, they, they knew that it was real. They, they said, this time it's real. Like, we can tell, like, she's got him. And, and they even brought their money. Like, like, they came with the money, even after three other times showing up and finding out he was tricking her. This time, they, they didn't just show up. They also brought the money in their hand. And then she lulled him to sleep on her knees. And he called for a man, and she didn't do it. She had somebody else do it. She, she had tied him and, and weaved his hair and done all that stuff herself. But this time, she calls a man in, and, and she began to, I'm sorry. And then she lulled him to sleep, called for a man, and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. So because Samson's hair was described as locks, that's why I think you know, in the movie they portrayed Samson as having dreadlocks, um, which was probably not completely far-fetched. If you have seven locks, I don't know how else you have hair with seven locks if they're not somewhat, whether you call them dreadlocks or whatever kind of locks. But yeah, this was a Fusco dude. So he had, he had the seven locks. So see, locks are good. They're biblical. Could any of you guys sleep through a haircut? Maybe some of you think, ah, I probably could, you know, but I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, Mike, it wouldn't be much for you, right? Like, I just go, <laughs> it's all gone. But I'm thinking you should, you know, how, how do you not wake up through a haircut? Like, and especially if you got hair that's never been cut your whole life, it's long, it's locked, it's, that's how you sleep through it? Cut it without them waking up? Yeah, I'm sure they were knife, razor, something sharp, but still, I'm thinking I would have woke up through it, and it says, 
But he slept through it, and, and she lulled him to sleep on her knees. But again, you know, part of, I think, I, I think what I see in here a little bit, and I actually heard, and I think another pastor mentioned it, is that, you know, it seemed like the Samson was tired. Not, maybe not just physically tired, but he, he's, constantly, he's sleeping in all these, these occasions, like, you know, maybe emotionally and maybe because of his sin and because of there's really not. A, and that's what happens in sin, really. That's what happens in a life when there's really not a real peace with God, peace in your relationships. And there's always this turmoil and this vexing and this, you know, thing that was described that we read pestering and pressing and vexing in verse 16, that, that it did create a, a real um, hardship of his soul in that, you know, <coughs> he was tired. And so. Maybe when he did sleep, he, he crashed out and and was able to sleep through her doing all these things to him. And now we come to um, probably one of the several of the, the saddest verses in all the Bible and and a place that God has recorded for you and I so that you and I never have to get there. OK, everybody say never, 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 never want to get there. There's a whole point of this story. Or not the whole, yeah, it's the whole point right here. Verse 21. Oh, verse 20. And he, she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I, of course, Samson and his I, 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 I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know. Oh, you guys, we should cry. That the Lord had departed from him, but he did not know that the Holy Spirit had departed from him. You know, again, along the same hearts of King David. And King David in his sin, he was broken over his sin with Bathsheba. And, and he was afraid. And he was at a point in his life where he had reached true repentance. And he writes Psalms 51. And in there, he begs God and he says, God, do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Don't remove your presence from me. And in the life of a believer, the, right, the, the scariest thing that could ever happen to us is the, the most important thing in our lives, the most important thing in your life, in my life. And, and I can't even describe it as important because it's so beyond important. I, you know, we've, we've, we've been over this concept before, like that it's, there's no way to describe it. It's not the only thing. It is not the thing because it's so much greater than that. But the thing, the most important thing in your life, in my life as a believer is the presence of God. Is that God is with you. And everything is, is that, you know, Jesus said, I will be with you. Number one promise in all the Bible is God's presence in your life. And for God's presence to be removed from your life is absolutely the most scariest um, place that any of us could ever end up and ever be. And that's why this is one of the scariest and, and saddest verses in all the Bible. Because the Spirit of God left Samson. You know, and again, you know, read Psalm 51, you know, it's, it's a great power wrenching Psalm that David says, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me and begs God not not to take the Holy Spirit away from him in his sin. And it says. Um, 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 where are we at? Twenty one. The Lord had departed from him. That's sad. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D right there in verse 20, right? Tetragrammaton, that's Yahweh. That's, that's the, the, the tetragrammaton, the name of God. And then in verse 21, it says, Then the Philistines took him and put his eyes, put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. And they bound him with bronze fetters. And he became a grinder in the prison. And so the... The, the sin of Samson, the lesson here in verse 21 is that the sin 
blinds us, it binds us, and it grinds us. And that's what sin does in your life and in my life. It blinds you, it binds you when you become addicted to whatever that sin is in your life, and it, and it grinds, and it's just a grind of life. And that's exactly what happened to Samson. Literally, they gouged his eyes out, they bound him, they put him on, um, they put him on a, a, what do you call him, a grinding wheel, but it was... Um, for grain, it was a big, huge millstone that had a central pole with a pole here, big, huge stone. You see them in Israel with a trough that goes around. They would usually use animals, donkeys, different things to, to walk in a big circle that would, and this big millstone would, would grind the, the wheat and whatever they were grinding as they went around. And they tied Samson to one of them, and he spent the rest of his days walking in a circle pushing this this millstone around in a circle as it grinded him. Now, you know, lots of stuff to talk about here, right? Like your first impression of Samson is is what? Anybody? In the story where he's telling Delilah what to do. I hope it's he's an idiot. I forgot I still have my whistle on. I just got back from practice, you guys. Sorry, please excuse. I had to eat. I, Lydia was going to bring me some food. Nate and I had a practice that ended at 7 and Tried to rush out of there and get over here in time. Um, so you, you think, right? Like you, Samson's an idiot. What, who in the world would tell her what was going on and why would he, um, what brought him to that point? Now, lot, lots of stuff going on in the life of Samson. Now, Samson was a Nazarite from his birth, right? And there's three parts to being a Nazarite, okay? Not to touch a carcass, not to drink wine, and not to have his hair cut. And so he had already broken two of the three. And what happened? Nothing, right? When he broke two of the three. So he got away with touching carcasses. He created a lot of dead carcasses too. He, he, he broke the, the vine um, part of the Nazarite vow and nothing happened. Really, I wonder if part of Samson was thinking, well, you know, I've already broken two of the things and nothing happened. And, you know, maybe God's okay with it. And and that's one of the dangers in sin. One of the things that happens when that hot iron of sin passes over your life, not only do you you, um, not believe that it's as bad as it was the first time you did it, and your conscience isn't as plagued about it, but you, you can get to the point in your mind where you tell yourself that God's okay with it. That because God has not struck you with lightning or dealt with it or, you know, in your life already, that God somehow approves of your sin, that God is okay with whatever it is. And we go on and we justify and we can very easily justify those things in our lives that are sin. And and so for Samson, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think it's strange that maybe in his mind, he, 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 he just thought, you know, God hasn't judged me yet. And, and that's what sin does. It keeps, it keeps luring us and luring us that, that I'm going to get away with it again. I'm going to get away with it again. But there comes a day where the grace of God um, runs out. And, and in Samson's life, the grace of God ran out. And maybe it was just the combination of the three now. Now when he cut his hair, he had broken all three of the, 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 the parts of the, the um, Nazarite vow. And now he was there. You know, the other thing is that I think in this story that I see, you know, as you guys know, I, you know, I struggled with addiction before I was a Christian. Um, you know, I got saved at 20. And so by the grace of God, it wasn't a long, long run. And it was just about a year and a half between high school and getting saved that, you know, I had a pretty, pretty bad two years of, of, of a lifestyle. And, and I know as an addict that, you know, what sin does is sin, you know, it's hard for people that maybe have never 
um, experienced it, you know, and I know like for Lydia sometimes, Lydia has never had any of those struggles and she, she not totally goody two shoes, but she, she, she grew up pretty goody two shoes and a pastor's daughter. And, you know, she had her little things, but, you know, for the most part, you know, never really struggled with any of those things. And it's harder for her to, um, have as much grace and understand sometimes those things. And me coming from a different perspective, you know, we have this conversation from time to time over somebody's life and, you know, and, and she doesn't really get it. And I I don't get it either, but I at least get this, that the, the decisions that, that, that are being made are not who that person is. They're, they're, you make, you do things that are not you, that you would never do sober, that you would never do, that it's almost as if, you know, the addiction is doing it or that desire is, has taken over and to the point where you just make really, really bad decisions. You know, the Bible says that, that a dog returns to its vomit. And that's a description of what we do in sin. And it's disgusting, right? But yet we do it. And, and, you know, it doesn't make any sense. We're so self-destructive, you know, and, and why, you know, it's like you look at you, what is, what is crystal meth do for anybody? Have you seen those pictures, those before and after pictures of crystal meth of what it'll do? I mean, their teeth rot out, their skin, they'll lose weight they're you know, like they are completely, um, somebody else. And you, you look at that and you think, why in the world would anybody want to do that to themselves? Why would they continue and it doesn't make any sense, right? Like it, it baffles you, baffles you what, what, what people will do, steal from their own mama to, you know, to get high. And, and it just, it, it's a power of sin that entraps you. It blinds you, it binds you, and it will grind your life when we give ourselves over to sin. And, and, and God says in his word and God, you know, for thing, the thing that we have to communicate to our kids, to your children, to my children is that, you know, in, in that sin is not a, a list of things that God is a killjoy and he just doesn't want you to do. He doesn't want you to have sex outside marriage. He doesn't want you to be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. He doesn't, you know, and sometimes kids get the idea and us as well that, that God just doesn't want us to have any fun. But we have to we have to make sure that we're communicating to our to to our kids and understanding ourselves that, that that God prohibits these things because they'll destroy our lives. They're not an arbitrary list of of things that God said, you know, if you're good Christians, you don't do them. And if you're heathen, you can't, you know, you do them. It has nothing to do with an arbitrary list that God created of what's good and bad and what's right and wrong. It's it's common sense. That, that these things will destroy your life. And God, as a what? As a good, good father who loves his children, wants to prohibit us, keep us from doing those things that will destroy our lives. And sin absolutely destroys lives. And, it, and you know what? No, nobody, ever, nobody ever falls into, you know, a hardness of heart overnight. No, no, nobody wakes up from zero to verse number 20 that the spirit of the Lord has left them and they didn't know it. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens very gradually. And the grace of God is very, very patient. And again, because God's patience and God's grace is so ab- abundant and we get away what feels like we're getting away with sin for so long, we start to tell ourselves that it's okay and God approves and so we want to run, 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 run from those sins. And, um, and it says in verse 23, it says, oh, verse 22, 
However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. Now, let's talk about um, sin and um, repentance. So, verse 21, or I'm sorry, yeah, what what verse? 22 is is an encouraging verse. Um, His hair began to grow back. God, God was again going to work in his life. And so, um, you know, when you ask God to forgive you of your sin, it's instant. God absolutely, instantly, immediately forgives you of your sin when you repent and ask God. He puts it as far as the east is from the west. He throws it into the sea of forgetfulness. He's not mad at you. He doesn't remember it. He doesn't hold a grudge against you. God's the only one, by the way, that has the power to do that in your life. It's the love of God that no human possesses the ability that God does to so thoroughly forgive and forget and, and treat you as if it never happened. We, we can't do that as humans. We can't forget a sin against us and those things, but God is able to do that and he chooses to do that. But the, the sanctification and the, the, the restoration is not instant. It's never instant. You know, if you, if you guys, you know, you go out of here and you, you know, you get drunk tonight and you get in a bar fight, you know, wasted drunk and you break your arm and you go to ER and, and, you know, you get your arm set and they put a cast on it. And then you have a a really genuine heartfelt time of, of King David repentance. And you say, God, forgive me. I'm, you know, I'm genuinely sorry. And and God, I'm broken. I don't want to do that anymore. And, you know, and, and please forgive me. You're instantly forgiven. God forget it, forgot it ever happened. But that arm that's in a cast, you're still going to be in a cast for six weeks. That, that's going to be gradual. You know, you're, you're still going to deal with the consequences of the actions that you took. And, and that cast will serve as a reminder for you even for six weeks or whatever the time is. And so, you know, God, God instantly forgives us, but, but sin has a cost. And, and again, it's not, again, it's something, again, important to communicate to young people and to our kids is that it's not God punishing you. God, God's not punishing you. He, he, there's natural laws that God has set in place that, that, that that's the result. You know, one of the things about King David, again, King David is such an example of somebody who had great sins, who had real repentance, had instant forgiveness, and still had to live with the residuals of, of the choices in his life. You know, and you read some of the things about the end of King David's life and there was consequences for his sins. So, yes, God forgave him and he was a man after God's own heart. But there were real consequences for David's sin at the end of his life and in his life. He, his kids rebelled against him as a result of his sins. His son slept with his wife. He at the end of David's life, he couldn't get warm at night. And of all the things, the areas where you talk about, you know, if you can't sleep, that's hard. All the things you, we deal with in life, right? If you go through a season where you just can't sleep at night, like no matter what's going on, pain, whatever, as long as you get some time to sleep, he couldn't get warm at night and he couldn't sleep and they would pack bodies on him at, at, you know, to try to keep him warm. The only way they could try to keep him warm at night, but lots of residuals in King David's life. And then it says, um, we're almost done, you guys, promise. I see those looks on your faces, okay? Shake it off, shake it off. Taylor Swift it. And now the Lord of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, to rejoice. And they said, so real quick, so this, this great sacrifice to Dagon. Now, you guys remember Dagon? Dagon was...
the gods of the Philistines. Do you remember when Israel lost the ark and the ark of the covenant was, was stolen by the Philistines and they put it into the temple of Dagon? And Dagon was a half fish, half human god. I showed pictures of when we were going through Samson. It's, it's really where we get mermaids from. Really, the, the concept of a mermaid is a pagan deity. And, and it's, this particular pagan deity is a historical deity called Dagon. You can see pictures of him all over Google online. And basically, it's a man, not a woman, but it looks like basically a mermaid. And so Dagon was one of the the major Philistine gods, the Ark of the Covenant. They placed it in the temple of Dagon. They came in the next day and this big statue of Dagon was laying down next to the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that story? Great story. And they stand their God back up and the next day they come back in and this time the God had fall, the, the, the statue had fallen over again. This time his head fell off and his hands fell off. And, and so, you know, and then they come back in and their God was laying down next to it. And so they, you'd think they would get the picture, right? That the God of Israel was greater, but they didn't. They just glued the hands back on their God. So Dagon is there. They're, they're, they're having this big um, festival to Dagon, which again was one of the Philistines' gods that they served. And so it happened in verse 25. When their hearts were merry, that means they were drunk, that they said, call for Samson that he may perform for us. Dance, suck a dance. So they called Samson from the prison and per- And he performed for them and they stationed him between the pillars. And Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I may lean on them. And so, you know, one of the things about Samson is that he he had no accountability in his life. And as we talked about often, there's no record of Samson, you know, building an altar of him praying. The two times it's recorded that Samson prays before this was when he was thirsty and he was mad. Remember, and he was like, oh, my, I just need some water. And um and then we'll see another one coming up, but no, never of him dedicating anything to God, seeking God, no accountability to anybody in his life. You know, he basically told he had good parents that, that loved God and loved him. And but Samson basically just told his parents what, you know, he wanted them to do. And even if they didn't think it was a good idea, they still did it for him anyways. But no accountability in his life. And now for the first time, um, Samson has accountability in his life. And he's accountable now only to this little lad, a little boy. And he tells the little boy and he needs him to lead him. And he said, let me fill the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. And now the temple was full of men and women. And the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof, watching while Samson performed. And Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once. O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. So some really, really, really good in this now, I think, for the first time. And still a little bit of Samson, I I see. You guys can have your own opinion as you read through there. But um, he ends by saying, for my two eyes. So it's still Samson-esque. Like he's more concerned, he's still concerned about his two eyes, you know, rather than. But you do now see for the first time where Samson is genuinely seeking God. He's asking and he understands that the strength comes from the Lord. He, he understands that, that, that it's God who, who, who would pour his spirit out upon him. And Samson now for the first time in, in, in his life at the very last moments of his life, recorded anyways, it says that Samson called out to the Lord. 
in, in a real prayer and a real point. And had he, done, had he been doing this all along? Had he had some accountability? Had he had some, some good people around him that he was accountable to? And had he you know, had some devotion? He built altars and he gave the Lord. I mean, Samson could be one of the greatest people in all of human history. He really could have went down as you know, somebody that was, was absolutely one of the greatest icons of all human history. And it says, um, I pray just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right hand and the other on his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. And his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him. So they had to find him in the rubble and all the mess because the whole thing had fallen on top of him. So no doubt they would have had to dig him out. And they brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshcol in the tomb of his father Manoah and had judged Israel 20 years. Now, um, Delilah, no doubt, was at this festival watching this whole thing. And, you know, for the first time, I think Delilah got her answer, you know, wherein lies my great strength. And hopefully she got her answer at the bottom of that rubble pile. I'm hoping that's where Delilah ended up. That's where she belongs. You know, her question was finally answered, though, you know. Um, la- last couple of thoughts, you guys. You can close your Bibles if you want. We're, we're pretty much done. But, you know, in, in Samson's life, that Samson was, was down and out and that he still cried out to God. And what did God do? What did God do? Did God answer him or did God tell him, hey, shut up, fool. You cut your hair. I'm done with you. What did God do? God showed up. God showed up. And just again, another another picture of God's grace and another encouragement for every one of us that no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, if in your heart you you want to cry out to God that 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 God will absolutely hear you and forgive you. You know, for some people, it, the issue is that you, you get to a point where you just don't want to cry out to God. And that's the scary part. That's that, that, that seared with a hot iron. But if in your heart, your heart is soft, that you're willing to cry out to God, God absolutely will hear, he will forgive, he will heal. Amen? Let's stand. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for Samson. And Lord, we, we realize that, that Samson does become, Lord, in all reality, a, a great example in the Bible of what not to do. Of Lord, not what not to be. And Lord, the, the great, um, just, just examples of his sin, Lord, that, that eventually brought him to the place where he just made terrible decisions. And God, for the life of us, we can't figure out why he would um, tell Delilah, why he would trust Delilah with his real secret. And Lord, maybe again, he just, just believed that because you hadn't done it yet, that, that your grace would just continue through his sin. And Lord, help us not to believe those lies of Satan, God. And Lord, help us as men and, and Lord, as women to um, Lord, just be careful of relationships that are not from you, God. And Lord, that we would wait on you and trust on trust in you. Lord, I pray for our kids. Lord, I pray for um, that that they, Lord God, would would trust in you, and Lord, that they would wait on you for godly relationships. And Lord, so many times we know that that Satan is a, a plan of his attack. He brings this seductress woman, and and she's a counterfeit, Lord. And and we as your people, God, we got to wait on you, Lord, and wait on your timing and your blessing, and believe, God, that you're very capable to bring. 
um, the right relationship and the right person. And Lord, we know that you've created us with these, these desires and needs and they're godly. And Lord, if you've created them, that you'll also provide and meet for them. And Lord, it's just, it's a problem in the church. It's a problem among, um, Lord, your people. And it has been since the Garden of Eden. And so, Lord, guard us from that, Lord. And again, provide, Lord. And, and God, I pray that, um, Lord, even in our church, we thank you for the relationships that are being built. And Lord, for people that are, that are meeting and, and other Christian people. And Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.